0: Well, this is the last message in the series, and uh, the series, we're trying to do a play on words dis and content, discontent, but if you followed all through the series, the first two messages dealt with things that uh, if we're healthy human beings, we will be discontented with and should stay discontented with. Last week, we kind of turned the corner, and we looked at two items, today being the second one, that we should be or can be content with. One, last week, it was it was God's provision. You might remember the message that Paul said he learned how to be content in any and every situation. Uh, today we want to look at content with God's promises. Now I want to start by reading you something. Uh, this is the beginning of a book by Harvard psychologist and researcher Daniel Gilbert. He opens his best-selling book, Stumbling on Happiness, with what he calls the sentence. And the sentence begins with these eight words. The human is the only animal that... And Gilbert argues that every professor needs to finish that sentence. And here's how he goes on. The human being is the only animal that thinks about the future. Uh, Human beings think about the future in any way that, or in a way that no other animal can, does, or ever has. And this simple ordinary act is the defining feature of our humanity. Now, of course, I would argue with a number of things he says there, but I do agree with the fact that we are beings that think about the future. And I think that if we look at it real carefully, the reason we think about the future is because we are looking for hope. We are hope-driven creatures. We, uh, we're looking today at the subject that we can be content in this world with all of its irregularities, with all of its imperfection, with all of its uncertainty based on the promises of God because the promises of God give us a different kind of hope. So people looking into the future, the typical person that you and I will you know cross paths with, Um, nice people maybe, you know, maybe really bright, maybe really, uh, you know, highly educated, and maybe some not so much so, but you will find that their hopes of the vast majority of people that you and I will ever meet, they're, they're based on something like this. They hope, first of all, that they'll live for at least a good long life, you know, so their hope is they'll at least be alive tomorrow. They don't have any guarantee of that, but their hope is a good long life. And their second hope is that it'll be a reasonably happy life. Uh, Talk to anybody you want, and you will find that when people have either knowingly or unknowingly left the Creator and His promises uh, out of their perspective or paradigm on life, this is pretty much where it falls. And when you really look at it, it's like this. They're kind of driven by self-preservation. They just want to live as long as they can. They hope they get a good long life. And self-gratification. While they're alive, they want to have as much fun, be as happy as they can. Vast majority of people... Their hope does not go any further than that. And, and it seems like, a, you know, kind of a rational place to have your hopes because it's based on what your senses can conceive of. It's based on the fact that, you know, you know that death is a reality. And so, all things considered, that's about the best you can come out with it. You're time-bound, you're sense-governed, you're, you're kind of destined for death, and so that's pretty much it. And here's the sad part... Uh, a human being can choose to be content with that. But content is not really the right word because they're not content all through their life. The, the real word is this. We, we can choose to, to settle for that and we cheat ourselves and we will go through life never having any sense of it. Life will never have any meaning, never have any purpose. Our own lives and existence will have no meaning, no purpose. Uh, we have no certainty about tomorrow. We have no certainty where society is going. We have no certainty that a day of justice is ever going to exist. We have no certainty that anything transpires past the grave. And so, if you can accept that, be content with it. But history was interrupted nearly 2,000 years ago, and you can't get away from this personage, nobody that is an honest historian would even dare to try to get away from the personage. History was interrupted by this person called Jesus, and he flipped everything upside down. Everything that mankind had come to accept as inevitable, Jesus turned it upside down. Disease, diseases of all sorts, Jesus healed them with a word, with a touch. Death itself, there were three different occasions while He was on earth during his three and a half year ministry that he literally raised people back to life. Other people saw it. One time a guy was dead for four days and he brought him back to life. Four different times during his three and a half year ministry on earth, he predicted, told his followers that he himself would be crucified, rejected, and that he would die and that ultimately he would rise again from the grave. Four times he told them this. It's one thing to say something like that. There are a lot of crazy people that predict things, but, but Jesus pulled it off, and he pulled it off in a way that is beyond reasonable doubt. Yeah, I said it, beyond reasonable doubt. It says in the book of Acts chapter 1 that Jesus not only rose from the dead, but he showed himself alive, not one day, not one time, not to just a handful of people, but he showed himself alive for 40 straight days to multitudes of eyewitnesses, And this is why, make no mistake, this is why Christianity, the message centering in Christ, exploded across the Roman Empire and in three short short centuries turned the Roman Empire upside down until the point that Constantine declares it the religion of the empire. Because these first followers of Christ, they said, listen, listen, we know, we experienced it, we were right there. Something has happened. This person has broken into human history and everything that we believed was possible before, we now know there's so much more that's possible. We saw it with our own eyes. We experienced it with our ears. In the case of Peter, who we're going to look to in a minute, he experienced, the man experienced Jesus enabling him, giving him the power to literally walk on top of water, at least for a short time, until he got his eyes off Jesus. So these eyewitnesses, when they went out and proclaimed this message that the Creator has come and He's good and He's merciful and He's forgiving and He loves everybody and He wants everybody to be reconciled to Himself, all He's asking of us is that we return to Him and trust and He's totally pres- uh, produced or shown Himself to be utterly trustworthy. When they proclaimed this message, it was based on factual experiences, not fanciful notions. And these people in droves went to death rather than back up on this message because they knew. They knew. So it's in this context that we want to look at how, how can we learn to be content because of God's promises. And, and we can, folks. We really can. Uh, it's, it's not an unusual thing when, you know, events like this Las Vegas thing happened, you know, people want to say, well, where's God? Where's God in all this? Why doesn't he do something? If he's here and he cares and he's loving and he's righteous and he's almighty and all powerful and he's omnipresent, why doesn't he do something? We'll, we'll get to that, I promise you, because there's a very, very good answer that the Creator has for that, and it can help all of us to learn to be content in this present world that, that is, we all acknowledge, not the most perfect place to be. So, With that in mind, let's uh, turn to that book that I mentioned, 2 Peter. We're going to look at the last words of the Apostle Peter. And if you don't mind turning to page 1,369, you'll be in the book of 2 Peter. And uh, just to give you a a little background, when Peter writes these words, very soon after finishing this letter, he is executed by Nero. And and perhaps, perhaps he knew that that was impending. Um, This is a man who... By now was much older. You know, he's 35 or more years older than when he followed Jesus. He had had vast experience. So now he had internalized every day of his life for the past 35 or more years the truth of Jesus. And he knew that that truth was the truth and that it could be trusted. And so he's writing these words to followers of Christ, some of his last words. And we'll start, I'm sorry, (laughs) we'll start in verse uh, 1 and go through. Uh, Let's go through verse 4, and then I'm going to show it to you in another version that's just a little bit more clear. So here we go. He says, from Simeon Peter, or Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Interesting term, the word slave there in the original language is doulos, it means bond servant, and of course apostle is one that was sent by Christ. So Peter, uh, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice in passing that Jesus is called God and it's because he is. He's our God and Savior. We have been granted a faith that is just as precious as ours. Now notice he's saying because of the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we've been granted a precious faith. What does he mean? This is real critical stuff, folks, because in church world for way too many decades now, uh, this word faith has been flimsily dealt with and thrown around. And, and so here it says that we receive this precious faith as a result of the righteousness of our God and Savior. It means that as people saw all the righteousness, all the goodness, all the trustworthiness, all the sacrificial love, all the mercy All the tenderness of God as it was exhibited in Jesus, who was God, is God, always will be God. Co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. When people saw that, it gave a basis for them to return to their God and Savior Jesus Christ in trust. When the scripture talks about we are saved by grace through faith, you have to understand, faith is not a magical connotation. It's not some sort of a contractual agreement between us and God, Uh uh-uh. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, which represents us at our best, broke trust with God. When Satan came in the form of the slander, and he slandered God's character and said, you know, he's depriving you. He, he doesn't want you to experience all that you can experience. You could be like God yourself. We went for it. We really believed that by living under our own desires, our own will, we could have a better quality of life than under God's will. And we broke trust with God. The whole rest of the Bible The whole rest of the Bible is God gradually, gently, patiently revealing himself. When somebody slanders you, you can't just turn it over quickly. You've got to prove yourself, and it takes time. He's gradually, gently, patiently revealing himself, revealing his trustworthiness to win back the trust of humanity. Simultaneously with that, he's letting humanity have our own way, letting us do our own will, letting us see just what that brings. And, of course, it brings the bloody history that human beings have had. And, and so all of that is packed into this verse. And so, folks, when we, when we say things like, you know, uh, I, I'm a Christian, it means that I have returned to Christ my creator in trust. And that means that if I have returned to him in faith and in trust, it's going it's to show itself in concrete life-changing evidence. And that evidence is this. I'm going to actually be found following him. And I'm going to follow Christ. We're going to see this a little later in this verse. I'm going to follow him because I'm drawn to him. I'm drawn to be like him. Everything I see in him is wonderful and lovely, and I want that for myself. And that's what draws me to follow him. I follow him freely. I want to be like him. I want to do his will. I follow him fully. That means every area of my life because I no longer trust myself. I trust him supremely, and I'm going to follow him forever because he changes not, and he's won my heart. He's won my trust. That is what it means to be a Christian. Don't let somebody sell you a counterfeit. Church has been peddling counterfeits for decades now. This nonsense that you just say some prayer and ask Jesus into your heart and just believe some facts about Jesus and that's all you need to do. It is the reestablishment of a trust relationship with Christ our creator and nothing less than that because God, listen, God doesn't want to rule over us through force. And he refuses to rule over us through fear. He will only rule over those that want his rule, those that trust him. And because we trust him, we desire to learn his will and do his will. So this business of faith that's, on, that's based on the righteousness of God, this, this is big. And so I just want to ask you now, make sure before we go further, that your faith in Christ is a converting faith, a transforming faith, that you, you have engaged in a relationship with Christ in which you no longer do your will. When Christ says, don't do something, you read it and you say, I'm going to stop it. When Christ says, I want you to learn to do this, you say, I, I agree. I'm going to do it because we trust him. Very, very important. Let, let's go on. So, all right, we, we laid some foundation. He goes on to verse two. He says, may grace and peace be lavished on you as you grow in the rich knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3. I can pray this because his divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness through the rich knowledge of the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. Pause there for a minute. So here he says that, that through Christ, we receive from Christ everything we're going to need to face, anything we'll face in life, And we also receive from him everything we need to become godly, people that live their lives as though they were in the presence of God. And and, and he says that we were drawn to him by his own excellence. This is what I was talking about earlier. You know, sometimes church world, we say stupid things to people like, oh, how many want eternal life? How many, you know, you don't want to go to hell, do you? How many here want to go to hell? You don't want to go to hell, you want eternal life? The scripture never talks like that. The scripture says... Now that God has revealed Himself in Christ completely, fully, does that draw you to him? D- does that make you want all that he offers? Does that make you want all that he is? Do you have you been drawn to him? In the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 13, you're checking on your own, it says that that God calls out to us through the gospel. The gospel is the message of Christ. Here it says God calls us by his own glory revealed in Christ. Folks, if we haven't been drawn by the beauty of Christ's personage into a trusting relationship with him, we may have a transactional salvation. Transactional salvation is you think you've cut a deal with God because you want the elevator to go up instead of down at life's end. And that's a deception. So he's writing to people that understood. He's saying, yeah, I know what you mean, Peter. I know when I heard about Jesus, when I saw the way he lived, when I saw the way he treated people, when I saw the way he healed and forgave and loved, I wanted him. I wanted to be his follower. I wanted to be like him. I'll follow him to the last breath. That's Christianity. That's what a Christian is. So let's get in our framework. Let's go on. Verse 4, he says, Through these things he has bestowed on us his precious and most magnificent, what is the word? Promises. Promises. Follow this word out. So that that by means of what was promised, there's a second use of it, you may become partakers of the what? You tell me, the divine nature after escaping worldly corruption that is produced by evil desire. Let me show you a couple other uses in the book of Second Peter, this word promises. Just flip a page or so. And if you don't mind looking at chapter 3, verse 3. And the context is about the second coming. And he says, above all, understand this. In the last days, blatant scoffers will come being propelled by their own evil urges and saying, where is his, what's the word? Promised return. There's one of the promises. Drop down to verse 9. Some people say, you know, why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't he do something? Verse 9, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some regard slowness, but is patient toward you because he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to what? Repentance, which means I'm changing my mind about life. I'm changing my my mind about God. I'm going to turn to him and trust and do things the way he designed me to live. So if you want to know why God delays, there's one reason. Let me show you one more use of the word promise. Look, if you would, at verse 13 in chapter 3. But according to his promise, now the fourth usage of the word, according to his promise, we are waiting for new what? New heavens and a new what? in which righteousness truly resides. So this word promise means a lot in Peter's last words. It's the last time he thinks he's gonna be able to communicate to followers of Christ, and he wants to know we have some promises that we see exemplified in the life of Christ, and then given to us verbally in his word. Now when I say exemplified, I mean this. Every healing that Jesus did, it was the promise of God. There is a life where disease cannot injure us. There's a day coming when disease will not exist. When he's still a storm, it's, it's the promise of God. There's a time coming when you'll never have to be afraid of any kind of climactic activity again. Um, his entire life, when he raised people from the dead and when he himself rose from the dead, it's the promise that death will cease to exist. It will be a phenomenon no longer anymore. You'll read about this in just a minute in another passage I'm going to share. You think about it, it means a a fear-free living. Now, the important thing to see, though, is that these promises were powerful, it says, in enabling us to partake of the divine nature. And I want to unpack that. I'm going to read the same section of Scripture in a little bit of an easier version. And here we have it. It says, by his divine power... God has given us everything we need for a what? A godly life. So, so we, we have everything that we need for a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, meaning Jesus, the one who called us to himself by means of his What? Marvelous glory and excellence. It was the beauty of his personality. It was the words that he said. It was the deeds that he done. It was the promises that he made that draws us to, to him, not to some package with a ribbon around it called salvation. You Got to get this. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises. Now, get this. This is really powerful. These are the promises that enable you. Let's, let's play with that a little bit. Empower you enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. And we talked about human desires. Human desires are pretty much simple. They all categorize under two things. Self-preservation, I want to live as long as I can. Self-gratification, I want to get it, have as much happiness and pleasure as long as I can until my last breath. And it says that, that his promises save us from this fatalistic way of living that makes us vulnerable to all kinds of mistakes and all sorts of hurtful things to ourselves and to others. But these promises are so dynamic they enable us to share in the divine nature. This was the guy who knew a little something about the promises of God giving power to us. Remember I said earlier this is the guy that when Jesus said come on step out of the boat Jesus was walking on the water and Peter said hey if it's really you Lord. Call me to yourself. He gets out of the boat and he walks on the water. The power of the promise of Christ enabled him to do what he knew that he could not do. Now again, the guy sunk, you know, and got his eyes off Jesus, which is good for us because this is what we tend to do. We drift. But but I want you to let that sink in. His promises enable us to share in his divine nature. What does that mean? To share in the divine nature. Well, it simply means this. The promises of God give us the energy, give us the power, give us the motivation that we can live the same way that God himself lives. God is always governed by his sacrificial love. He is righteous. He is holy. He always does what is the highest good for others. God's inside looks so different than our inside. He doesn't have any fear. He doesn't have any shame. He doesn't have any guilt. He is full of peace, he is full of joy, albeit he is in a state of grief for a while as he endures human suffering and sin. And he's got a purpose for that that I'll unpack later. But, but he's saying we can experience that same life. When we accept from God that we're forgiven because of Jesus, we can have peace. When we accept from God that, that he loves us And we don't have to prove anything to anyone. We don't have to live with shame and guilt and all these things. And when we do what God says is the way we were designed to do, and when we stop doing the things he said don't do that are counter to our design, we can share in the life of God. We start living right now in this life the way that God himself lives, and we we have the results inside, the peace, the joy, the motivation, the enthusiasm, and all these things that it brings. So that's what that passage was saying. That's what these promises of God... Do so. What promises are we talking about? Well, you saw in Second Peter that primarily he's talking about the promises that, that hinge around the return of Christ because that's the big changer. Jesus promised absolutely that he would return, and when he returns, everything is going to change. But let's, let's kind of pull the curtains a little wider about these promises. What are the kind of promises? Let's look at a verse from Ephesians. Here, the Apostle Paul is talking about these promises. He says, Blessed. Is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. So these promises, these blessings, they, they extend into a different dimension, a different place, the, the realms of heaven, uh, the kingdoms of heaven. There, there are kingdoms where God's will is done still all the time. Two thirds of the angels are loyal. And they're doing God's will all the time. And these are places where there's no such thing as fear and there's, there's no pain, there's no death, there's no suffering, there's no sorrow. There's nothing but love all the time. And we're going to be blessed with that. That's what we get. But, but let me throw a couple other things out to you that I think this could certainly entail. When it talks about these spiritual blessings. You remember when Jesus was on earth, he could just speak and think, or think for that matter and something would happen. Uh, if he wanted to heal somebody, he literally could just think it and heal them. He could literally cause things or create things at the speed of thought. He could cause or create things with thought. The scripture says we're, we're going to be transformed to the image of Christ. We're going to be given every spiritual blessing that Christ has. What if that includes the idea that whatever you think you can bring into creation? Now to bring something into creation, you've got to get an idea, then you've got to write it down, then you've got to work it out, then you've got to get some people to come alongside and use your hands. But what if you could think I mean, what right now? Maybe you don't like what you're wearing. And so all of a sudden you just think, I got a different set of clothes on. Bang, it's there. You know, I mean, this literally. What about travel? It says, in the heavenly realms, blessing in the heavenly realms. When you look in the Bible and you see how angels travel, they seem to travel at the speed of light. That's 186,000 miles per second. Uh, the universe is vast, you know. We, we don't even know much about our galaxy, uh, Milky Way galaxy, and there's 200 billion galaxies with 200 billion stars in each galaxy. Uh, all this stuff might be easily accessible, all included in this idea of spiritual blessings. Look at another verse from the New Testament, Paul writing to followers of Christ living in Philippi. We've seen this one before a couple weeks ago. He's saying to those that have put their faith and trust in Christ and become his followers, he's saying, you may live in America, you may live in China, you may live in Russia, but your real citizenship, our citizenship is in where? Heaven, real place, real dimension, where Jesus' will is done. And we also await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is again, the second coming, the promise that Peter was talking about. And when, the, when he comes, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of his glorious body by means of that power by which he is able to subject all things to himself. I'm just curious. How many of you, All truth be told, your parts are starting to wear out? Okay? You, you could use a little new body activity. Yeah. Me too, believe me, big time. (laughs) This is a tremendous, tremendous promise that enables me with my aches and pains now to be content because I got a brand new body coming. It's gonna be like Jesus. Jesus could appear, remember, he suddenly appears in the upper room with with the disciples, they're scared, they're hiding, and all of a sudden he appears and he says to Thomas, he says, okay, you wouldn't believe unless you could see the wounds in my hand and my side, go ahead, touch him. So he was still physical, but he could appear, let Thomas touch him, but then he could, disappear he in the book of Acts chapter 1 he ascends back up into heaven so gravity had no hold on him he could cook a fish breakfast for his disciples and I guess eat with them no problem but then like I say he could dematerialize and so uh, physics principles didn't have any governance over this body this is a body that's immortal it'll never feel pain again it'll never be sick again there'll never be an ache There's also more that this promise will bring us on the emotional level that we'll talk about in another passage in a minute. But just on a physical level. I mean, mean, believers, we're supposed to be living each day of our life that when we feel the aches and the pains and the frustration, we say, that's okay, I'm just one day closer to getting my new body. I'm just one day closer to home. My home, my citizenship is in heaven. And every day I travel on this planet, no matter what I go through, I'm just one day closer to my home. And that enables us to be content." in a very difficult world that is not functioning on any level for the most part the way that God would have it to function. Sometimes people say, particularly in light of these things, that you know, the injustice in our society and all the chaos and you know, these shootings that occur periodically, and, and you almost are tempted to get numb to them, they happen so regularly now, which is a terrible thing. But people will often say, and they'll, they might say to you as a follower of Christ, okay, if your God is so good, why doesn't he do something? Where is he? Where is he when, they, when he's maniacs or is mowing people down like this? Why, why doesn't he intervene? He could stop this. If he's all powerful, he could stop it. If he's all good, he would stop it. And they think that's a trick question. Well, well the answer is he fully intends to stop it. In fact, what God's methodology right now is, you, you, you got to get this. You might, you might have to use this in explaining something to a friend sometime. God is allowing evil, yes, allowing evil, deliberately allowing, not causing, allowing evil for a little while so that he can abolish it forever. You say, what do you mean, so that he can abolish it? I thought he had all power. Well, well, folks, where, where does evil come from? I mean, I have free will. I've done evil in my time. You have free will. You ever done some evil? Can I see the hand of anybody here that has never done any evil in their life? Let's turn it around. How many have done some evil? We're all in the club, aren't we? So for God to abolish evil, he has to so affect me inside so that I never again desire to do anything contrary to his will. That's a tremendous transformation. Let me say it again. He's allowing evil for a little while so that he can abolish it forever. God has progressively and gently revealed himself through human history. He culminated it in Christ, but he's also through human history been letting human beings like you and I experience evil for ourself. And he's gonna bring the time when we are so sick of it, when we're so finished with it, we're so done, that we cry out every time we see one of these events like Las Vegas, we say, yes, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Come, Lord Jesus, we need you. Human beings are not gonna solve the social problems, the political problems any of the problems that cause the chaos in this world that we would like to see change, but Jesus will. And so that's where we can be content in the midst of the discontent. Our God is allowing evil for a while so that he can abolish it forever. He's going to bring a place where human beings that have returned to him and trust no longer ever want to sin again forever. Where you could, if I were to take a cup and put it before you right now, and you knew that I had put deadly poison in it, Okay, so I I offer to you. I say, Sherry, will you drink this cup right here, this cup of poison? And you're going to look at me and say, no, no way. Oh, come on, Sherry, drink the poison. It'll kill you, but but drink it. Come on, drink. You're not going to take it, right? That's the place God's going to bring us, where we have so seen how awful it is when human beings defy the will of the creator, that that, that the notion of defying his will is going to look like that cup of poison. We're going to say, that's ridiculous. I'll never do this again. The lesson of history is the damage, the destruction, the horror that occurs when created beings refuse the loving will of their Creator. And that's why He's going to abolish it forever. The best gift that God could give was to make beings in His own image, beings that have the ability to experience life the way He Himself experiences it. But that means free will, folks. Angels have free will, humans have free will. And so God has worked an eternal plan where he would get free-willed agents, those that will trust him, return to him, where they will never want to break from his will again. And that's brilliance. So you say, where is God? When is he going to do something? Oh, he's going to do something. He's going to intervene. And when he intervenes, he's going to finalize evil forever. More than that, he's going to judge. Some people say, these people get away with everything. They're not getting away with anything. Uh Uh-uh, they're not getting away with anything at all. There's a very specific judgment So when he does intervene, it will be climactic and it will be forever and I can be content with that. I can wait. Can you? Christian, these are dangerous times. There's a lot of people that would stir you and I up to be angry and upset almost all the time for any number of reasons. Don't fall into it, Christian. We can be content with God's promises. Listen how extensive they are. Listen to this section of scripture. It was part of the song that we sang just a moment ago, or that was sang for us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Notice the earth. A lot of times people think it's all about heaven. This good old earth, we're going to be on it too. It's going to be renovated, of course. It'll need it after we destroy it. But um, it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist. And the sea existed no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. And he will wipe every tear. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death will not exist anymore. Or mourning or crying or pain. For the former things have ceased to exist. What is God doing? He's going to bring it to its end forever. Evil, pain, suffering has a very short shelf life. He's going to intervene. He's going to end it forever. And the one seated on the throne said, "Look, I'm making all things new." Then he said to me, "Write it down because these words are reliable true." Listen, if your hope if your hope is resting on anything less than this, it is an insufficient hope and it will deprive you of having motivation, energy, and enthusiasm to grow, to become a more Christ-like person, to live a sacrificially good life, to be who you were meant to be and do what you were meant to do. More importantly, at the last moments in life, when you need it most, when, when you know the, the veil is closing on your life, it will leave you empty and terrified. I'll tell you a story of a lady, an uh, interesting lady, her name is Nina Wang. And she's a most interesting looking lady. <laughs> Uh, Most of her life, she wore those pigtails and and that sort of thing. But here's what's interesting about Nina. Nina was, she died in uh, 2007, she was, for her life, the most wealthy lady in Asia. The most wealthy. She was a multi-billionaire. It all started when her husband, Teddy, got into the real estate business, and he did really, really well, so well that, you know, millions were just piling They they built hundreds, if not thousands, of skyscrapers in Hong Kong (laughs) And uh, he was doing so well that he was kidnapped in 1989, chained to a bed for a long period of time. But then the ransom money was received and he was returned home. But then uh, back uh, just a few years later in 1990, uh, they re-kidnapped him. He was never seen again. So the empire was then turned over to Nina, his wife. She did really well. She did even better than than what was going before and became this multi-billionaire. So picture this. You're a multi-billionaire. So you now have the freedom pretty much to go where you want to go, do what you want to do, experience anything you want to experience, okay? That's, that's about as much as we could get out of this life, but that hope, that hope is insufficient. You see, it, it doesn't go beyond, it doesn't go beyond the grave. So in 2006, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and she suddenly had a change of perspective. Often, it's not until our life or in the most dire moments that our perspective clears up. Uh, She had a change of perspective. And interestingly enough, there was a man involved in her life then who was a fung shui master. And some of you are saying, you mispronounced that. Oh, no, I googled it before I came up here. (laughs) You mispronounced it. (laughs) Which is kind of just this weird belief in energy flow with furniture and It's just ridiculous. But anyway, um, Tony Chan was his name, and she actually had a 15-year relationship with Tony Chan. But just four years, four years uh, before this, she changed her will. She had that all of her money, her assets were to go to her family and to her favorite charity. But then toward the end of her life, she's got cancer. Just a year before her death, Tony Chan gets her to change her will, and this is how. He promised her through his feng shui powers, he could give her eternal life. He could show her how to cheat death. She could buy her way out of death. And so she turned her will toward him and every single penny was given to Tony Chan. But, you know, she might have thought, why would he be interested in being on my will if he's going to give me eternal life and I'm going to live forever? But when we're desperate and scared... And when we've lived our whole life with an insufficient hope, just hope tomorrow's better than the next day. Just hope i live a good, long life. It's never long enough, folks. It's never long enough. It's never good enough. Because you were meant for so much more. Every human being is meant for so much more. And if we settle, we will find at the worst season in our life when it's often too late that we have been a fool and it's too late to do anything about it. Now, maybe you're thinking, "Well, well, Randy, you know, uh, why didn't she you know, turn to Jesus Christ? You know, he offers the real thing, real eternal life. He gave evidence, compelling evidence, that there's life after death by his own resurrection and so forth. Well, I don't know the whole story, but I know this. I know that it's impossible for a woman like Nina Wang, impossible for her not to have heard the message of Christ. But what did we read earlier in those verses? It says that the Christians are those that are drawn to Christ having seen his own excellence and virtue. I want to suggest to you that she knew about Christ But she didn't see anything that attracted her, that drew her. And so she ends up desperate at the end of her life and sells, tries to sell her soul to a guy named Tony Chan. Um, Interesting, interesting situation. So our paradigms, our, our perspective can change about what we're satisfied with, about what we're settling with, about what we're content with when we're really faced with a personal crisis. I don't know if you've ever been faced with one, but we all will. So it's a good thing to consider what we're being content with now. All right, why are these promises so potentially dynamic? We read that Peter said, listen, if you partake of these promises of God, you can share in the divine nature. They're, they're powerful. They'll enable you to live godly. You'll have everything you need in this life for godliness, he said. They, they empower us. Well, how, how does that work? They're, they're motivational. Well, we know how promises work. For example, people this is humorous for me, people, when they find that a new iPhone is coming out, they will stand outside all night long in all kinds of weather, okay, because they are motivated by the promise of getting the new iPhone. Now, now can you imagine what, what havoc would break out if, if after these people line up all night long and they stand outside, the store finally opens up and the guy's like, I don't know what you're doing here, I didn't promise you anything, I, I don't. no matter what you thought, I'm not giving it to you, that would be really disillusioned, be kind of like if a a uh, couple were in a relationship and the guy you know finally gets that nerve up and he's going to bend the knee and make the proposal and so he proposes and says will you marry me and she takes the ring and puts it on her finger and everything and then she says well yeah I'll, I'll, I'll be engaged with you but I can't promise you anything I don't, I don't know if I'll ever marry you but I like the ring <laughs> I promise you I'll wear it changes everything But if she says, yes, I will, and I want to marry you, you know, it changes things. Promises are powerful in affecting the way we live now. Think about it. Uh, I I read that Princess Di's sons, uh, that that they got their inheritance when they turned 30. Now, you know, they had a pretty soft life even before them. But, but, you know, if I'm Princess Di's son and I'm working in a coal mine, I'm like, I'm still whistling because I know when I turn 30, I've got this inheritance coming. The circumstances, no matter how bad they are, they're they're not that bad because I have an inheritance. Christian, you have an inheritance. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the proof that we can count on this thing. It's valid. The whole Christian movement wouldn't exist if the early followers hadn't seen things with their own eyes, hadn't experienced things. And so it's one thing to have the inheritance. It's another thing to live with the realization every day. (laughs) This is mine. I'm getting closer, like I said earlier, to my home. So one of the things that these promises do is they have a purifying effect on us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, it says, All those who focus their hopes on Him and His what? His coming, His second coming, they seek to purify themselves just as He is pure. That verse is saying, John is saying this is normative. He's saying followers of Christ, they focus their hope on Him and on His second coming. And because they focus their hope on Him and His second coming, they can be found to be those that are purifying themselves. It's dynamic. Our hope, His promises are dynamic. Is that happening with you? We've got to ask ourselves is that happening with me? Am, Am I consistently purifying myself, becoming more like Christ, because I'm motivated, I'm enabled, I'm empowered? By his promises. Let's look at another thing that they do for us. This is a rather long portion um, that we're going to go to any second now, or not? There it is. Um, it says, God wishing to show beyond doubt that his plan was unchangeable, confirmed it with an oath, so that by two utterly immutable things, the word of God and the oath of God, who cannot lie, we who are refugees from this dying world might have a source of what? What's the word? a source of strength now, strength now, and might grasp the hope that he holds out to us. This hope we hold as the utterly reliable, what? Anchor. It's an anchor for our souls fixed in the very certainty of God himself in heaven where Jesus has already entered on our behalf. So his promises are meant to be anchors that, that even though the winds blow in life and, and the currents of life, they, they try to sweep us up in their value system and their behavior patterns. But we've got this anchor, this hope. We know the world we're headed for. We know this world has got a short shelf life and its values and its, its habits. And so we stay anchored no matter what's going on in life because we have this certainty of this life that will be everything we ever wanted and more. You can't get everything you want in this life. It's an impossibility because we want more than this life can offer. One last verse and we'll get ready to land. It says, get your minds ready for good use. Keep awake. Set your hope now and, what does it say? Forever, your hope now and forever on the loving favor to be given you when, what happens? Jesus Christ comes again. This is where my hope is. If my hope is on that and all that it's going to bring, all the change, the new heaven and the new earth and all these things, I can be content right now in this very painful world. And so can you. And that's that's God's gift to us. He wants us to enjoy that inheritance, to be enabled, to be empowered by it, to be motivated by it right here and right now. Let me close with a story about a guy named Tomas Martinez. It's It's a really unique story. In the year 2000, he was 67 years old. He lived in Santa Cruz, uh, in Bolivia. Uh, it's long, Santa Cruz de la Sierra in Bolivia, and uh, he was a homeless guy. And 67 years old, he was homeless for good reason. He was a drug addict and alcoholic most of his life, and so one day uh, he was hanging out, and he saw the police coming, and he kind of picked up that they were looking for him, and. His guilt triggered his fear. Isn't that what guilt does to us? It makes us fearful. And he bolted. And even though he was 67 years old, he was streetwise, man, and he he vanished. And they never found him. Now, here's the thing. The police were, in fact, looking for him. But they were not looking for him because of his alcohol addiction or drug addiction or perhaps any thefts that he had done. Who knows? That, That wasn't the reason at all. They were looking for him because he had inherited $6 million. True story. The papers ran the story. They never found Tomas Martinez. So he was a, a homeless millionaire. Now, my point is this: I think there's some of us and, and it could be some of us even in this room that the feeling of the approach of Christ, it makes us want to run. It makes us want to hide. It fills us with an uncomfortable feeling. We're we're afraid that, you know, perhaps we've done something that's unforgivable or perhaps Christ is going to make so many changes or want to make so many changes in our life that we're going to lose something. And so we run, we hide. He's coming to give us an inheritance. He's coming really to give us everything that in our deepest, purest desires we want. But we run and cheat ourselves. We, We stay homeless, though we have an inheritance offered to us. And some of you, maybe you've been running, you've been hiding, you're sitting in this audience, but you have not yet actually, you've really not actually, put your trust in Christ and become his follower. Remember what I said, the evidence will be you'll be found following him fully, freely, and forever. So think about that if that applies to you. And maybe this is the day that you accept your inheritance. Christ is the inheritance. But then there are us that we have returned to our God and trust, Christ our God, and we are his followers, but the truth be told, we've not been anchored. We've somehow, our anchor has come loose, and, and we're adrift. And if we were to examine where our hopes actually are today, our hopes are an awful lot like those that are apart from their creator. Our hopes are just that, hey, man, hope tomorrow's a little bit better than today. Hope I live a long life. Hope my career succeeds. Hope my relationships get a little bit better. You know, whatever it is. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about those things, but, but if that's where your hopes reside, those are insufficient. They won't keep you growing. They won't keep you joyful. They won't keep you peaceful. And so here you've got this enormous inheritance that Christ wants you to live in light of, um, but you've gone adrift. Your anchor has come loose. And so maybe he's trying to get some of you today to say, hey, come on, come on, be who you are. Live like who you are. Let's get at purifying yourself Let's get at seeing how we can really partake of the divine nature, share in the divine nature. So I want you to each consider if either of those two may be what the Spirit of God wants to apply to you and wants you maybe to personally respond to today as we pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we have a certainty through Christ that the longings of our heart, uh, the deepest longings, will be more than fully met. Thank you for the certainty now. sustains us enables us energizes us to partake of the life that you experience right here right now and to grow ever more pure just like you are lord jesus we pray that you'll have your way in our hearts today in christ's name we pray amen